0: If you're a tennis fan, you'll love betting weekly Game Bet Match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in-depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. It's the Mike Francesa Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to the Mike Francesa Podcast. As we head a little deeper into July, uh, right around the corner is football, so but today it's about uh, a little baseball. We're on the Bet Rivers Network as always, and for all your wagering needs, it's Bet Rivers in New York and New Jersey. Play Sugar House in Connecticut. So whatever you need, just go to their uh, app uh, and you'll find everything you need for all your needs there. And the program, of course, always on the Bet Rivers Network and wherever you can find your podcast. All right. The Mets had a disappointing weekend in Boston, especially when they win the first game. You win the first game. Verlander's been pitching better. And then Scherzer goes in there and... It's home run city. Uh, that's very disappointing. Uh, they lose the back two games. The Red Sox, as we talked about, can hit. You know how good a couple of guys in the lineup are. You know what is doing uh, this year. You know what a couple other guys are doing this year. Uh, and obviously they have a great player in the middle of the lineup. Uh, and... They obviously flexed their muscles as they did on uh, Sunday night in an easy victory. So the Mets will go into the uh, second edition of the Subway Series this year needing to just show some life. Uh, That's the bottom line. Uh, They're not eliminated yet, but they're on the brink. And everyone is spending all their energy on Mets being sellers, Mets being buyers. Hey, here's the bottom line. What, and I've said this before, what is the purpose of the Mets being sellers? The Mets do not have to reduce salary. It's not something that they have to do to further their plan. And then you get to Scherzer and Verlander, Nobody is going to touch those guys. First of all, for the Mets to pick up enormous parts of these salaries, and they're still owed a lot of money. They're not owed a couple of million dollars down the stretch. They're owed a ton of money down the stretch. Plus, they have no trades, and they have guaranteed money going forward. Nobody wants to pay Verlander in the 40s next year. Nobody wants to pay Scherzer in the 40s next year. And if you think somebody who's in a pennant race is going to rent one of these guys, first of all, they're not that dependable. Verlander's pitching well again now. But the Orioles' payroll is in the $60 million range. You think they're going to go pay for Verlander? They're going to go get a pitcher. They're going to give up one of their very talented – they're too deep at some positions. See, they've been stockpiling talent all these years when they've been terrible. They took it on the chin – they had empty seats, and they were winning You know, less than 60 games. They were awful, but they continued to stockpile talent, and now they are loaded with talent. Sometimes too deep at the same position. So they have the ability to go out and get themselves a pitcher for the stretch run. They can get Montgomery. They can get a pitcher off the Cubs. They can get a pitcher off the White Sox. They don't have to go get Verlander and pay him money. They don't I don't think anybody wants Scherzer the way he's been pitching. And Verlander, it's just too it's too expensive. And you're gonna ask the Mets to pick up a ton of money. And what are the Mets gonna do? Pick up you know $14 million on Verlander's contract just to get a better prospect? Save the money. Put it in the free agency. Plus, they need pitchers next year. They don't have any pitchers next year. They have to, they have to improve their pitching in free agency or in trades. And they have to hope that Verlander and Scherzer help them next year because they don't have any pitching in the organization. They have no starting pitching. It's not like they have a bunch of kids coming who are going to be just you know, great arms. They don't have any. And most of the times, the great arms they talk about don't turn out to be great arms anyway. So I don't think it matters what the Mets are going to do here. I don't think they have to do anything. If they want to dump a Robertson or a Fam to pick up a prospect, who cares if they're out of it? All right, it's not a big deal. They're not getting a great prospect for either one of them. And if they, don't want, if they want to deal the guys, go ahead. Nobody's going to give them anything for Marte. Had a terrible year. Can they get something for FAM? Yeah, but you're not going to get much. He's 35 years old, and he's a you know he's a solid you know guy who can help you in a stretch run. I like FAM. He's he's a good hitter, but he's not going to help any. I mean, he's not going to make a big deal. He's not going to you know bring in some great prospect. If the Mets are going to take a run at this next year, they're going to have to really improve their pitching a lot. They're going to get Diaz back. It's going to help their bullpen, no question. It's going to add a lot of depth to their bullpen. But the bottom line is, the Mets can't, they, they have guys who are struggling, who they expected a lot more out of, and you know their starting pitching just doesn't get the job done. This plan hasn't worked out. So you hope They get hot enough to make a run, but by as each day goes past and more, it looks like they don't have a run in them. I mean, that's just being fair. They don't have a run in them. The wild card, you know, they're sitting in the same position they've been in a while. They're seven and a half games out. They'd have to jump a lot of teams which becomes more difficult in September because every time you beat somebody, it helps somebody else. I've said this to you a bunch of times. If the Mets cannot get above 500, they can't launch a bid. You're not winning the wild card you know, under 500. You're not winning the wild card at 500. You have got to launch a bid from above 500. And they have not shown that they can be consistent in any way. Now, the Yankees, listen, they finally, after two very ugly games against the Royals, ones where Friday night they were lucky they won. Saturday, the game was a 3-2 game in the bottom of the eighth inning, with two out and a runner on third and two strikes on Stanton, and the kid throws the worst 0-2 pitch in the history of baseball, and Stanton hit it out of the park. So now the game's 5-2, which took some of the pressure off in the ninth when, you know, Royals got a couple of guys on. Friday night, with a little luck, they could have won the game. They didn't hit in either game, the Yankees. They couldn't put hits together in either game. And then yesterday, they finally found a pitcher who was so bad in Jordan Lyles that they could actually hit that Rizzo could actually hit that Rizzo could actually take out of the park and finally hit a home run, go four for four. They put up eight runs yesterday. They put up five on Lyles. Who's one in 12 now. And it's one of the worst pitches, maybe the worst starting pitcher in all of baseball. And then they tacked on three runs in the eighth, which they needed because they gave up runs again in the ninth. Everyone makes this comment, the Yankees having the best bullpen in baseball. I don't think they do. And I don't trust it. The reliance on Canley more and more scares me because I think Canley, I don't trust him for, at all. And I don't trust King or Holmes in big spots. Do they have good arms? Yes. Do the Yankees have guys who can come out of that pen and throw? Yes. Do the Yankee overall numbers, are they okay? Yes. Do I trust them in a the big spot? I do not. And they've blown a lot of saves. And I don't trust them. And look at, look at the three games. Nothing was clean late. Nothing. Friday night, Garcia hits a line drive that should have tied the game. And then they get beat on a base hit because the guy makes a gaffe on the, on the base pass. Otherwise, they might lose that game. They didn't hit it all on Saturday. So do I think the Yankees accomplished something? Yes, listen, they didn't embarrass themselves this weekend and they beat the Royals three straight. I know the idea, hey, you can only beat who you play. They wouldn't have beat a decent team Friday or Saturday. They haven't proved anything to me yet. They have gone through a stretch here where they have played lousy against teams that aren't any good. When they start playing the Orioles this weekend, even the Mets, and then the Orioles, you know what? We're going to find out a lot more about this team. I hope that means Rizzo's out of it because yesterday he faced some pitches and he got some hits. I'm not ready to say that. It's nice that he finally doesn't have to look up and realize he hasn't hit a home run in two months. I mean, the Yankees scored four runs in the first inning off Lyles yesterday, and they hadn't had a four-run first inning since Oakland two and a half months ago. Their offense has been so anemic, it's scary. So don't think because it was the Royals this weekend that the Yankees are out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination. The Red Sox don't have a whole lot of pitching. But their lineup is so much better than the Yankees, it's ridiculous. The Oriole lineup is in a different stratosphere than the Yankees. We know Tampa hasn't played well in a while, but Tampa has still got a lot of players in that lineup. Now the Yanks can get judged back sometime in the next couple of weeks. That's going to give them a big lift. There's no question about it. And the Yankees still have plenty to go out and make a trade, whether it's with the Cardinals, whether it's for Bellinger, whether it, and, and right now, if, if the Padres are now thinking that they are going to get to the postseason, and they're only forty-eight and fifty-two, so they have a lot of work to do. And they don't want to trade Soto, who's you know now got twenty home runs on the season, and is you know starting to have, and he's got an OPS and I think it was over nine now. So it's not like he's having a terrible season. Uh, and if they've decided not to trade him, then if I'm the Yankees, I go get Bellinger. Do not go get a right-handed hitter was some unproven outfielder from the Cardinals. Go get and Put him in the outfield. He'll help. He would help a lot down the stretch. That's what they need. He would help. So they can make a big run here, and I, I, we will all expect him to make the playoffs. I, I mean, I think you'll all be, everyone will be bitterly disappointed if the Yankees don't make the playoffs, but it's not going to be easy. Because the teams in that division, when they start playing everybody in the division again and playing the better teams, the te- the teams in the division are pretty good. It's not the Cubs. It's not the Cardinals. It's not the Rockies. The Yankees couldn't beat any of them. They beat the Royals. Hallelujah. And, you know, the way they celebrated, hey, I understand they haven't hit in a while, but if, you, if the Yankees could have paid to put a pitcher on the mound yesterday, it would have been Jordan Lyles. Okay? The guy is just dreadful. Yankees hadn't had 10 hits in, since, you know, the 1st of July or something. He gave up nine in five innings. The guy has a 620 ERA. He's dreadful. He's 1-12 in 12 now. The Royals have to have some way to get nine innings from somebody every night. So they need guys like that to go to the mound and take a beating. And they brought in some relievers who completely, you know, shut the Yankees down. And then the Yankees finally, you know, got a couple of runs off Barlow late. But... It was about them finally facing a pitcher who was that bad. So before you go crazy, and I understand, listen, I understand it's a day that without any question, Rizzo had to have. I mean, he needed a multiple-hit game. He needed to finally hit a home run. He finally got off that. That's positive. But if Torres, who has been their best offensive player, in the last month by far. If he's hurt, that's, that's a negative, and we don't know yet if he is. Volpe's in a real slump again now. And why go through it, most of their guys are in slumps. Stanton has hit some home runs. He looks to be coming out of it a little, but he's still only hitting 200. And the question is not, can they beat up, They finally got to a pitcher. They faced three pitchers who had terrible ERAs. They got to one of them. When they face quality pitching, which they will face starting Tuesday night, let's see them hit quality pitching. They on Sunday finally proved they could hit major league pitching, and that's a stretch with Lyles. So don't get crazy yet about the Yankees beating the Royals. We'll start to see a little more come Tuesday night. Um, emails, Mike Francesa podcast at gmail.com. Let's get to some. Here we go. Justin, what do you see as the root cause to such profound shift in how running backs are valued and used? Hey. It is the modern passing game. The modern passing game puts such a premium on wide receiver talent, puts such a premium on the value of positions. Start quarterback, go to left tackle, go to wide receiver, go to tight end, go to the rest of the offensive line positions, eventually get to running back, a position. That most teams want to use young guys, multiple players, and role players. And that is the modern game. The modern game has the passing attack where you, instead of running a sweep or an off-tackle play, you throw it for four yards. That's the modern game. Modern game is multiple sets, three wides a lot, two tights, three wides, four wides. So the running back has had to morph into a different position. And the bottom line is teams at one point were built about the big running back and built around the big running back, and they are no longer done that. They are now built around... The combination of the quarterback to his top target, who could be a very, very highly paid, highly thought of wide receiver, or in the case of Kansas City, they have two of the top five or six players in the league at in, in their quarterback and in their tight end. If you put Mahomes one or two in the league as the best player, and then you put Kelsey somewhere in the four to six range as the best player. They have two of them in the top five who are in their passing game. That's the way the game is played. That is the essence of modern football. So that is why it, you have seen the devaluation of the running back position. John from Jersey. What's your read on the uh, Republican primary field? And could any of the candidates beat Trump? I don't know. If the people who will vote, remember, the staunch diehards are the people who vote in the primaries. Those are your diehard members of your party. I don't know if enough of them have come away from Trump to where someone else can win. And really, you're talking about one person winning right now. The other candidates, none of them have a chance to win. There's one candidate that has a chance to unseat Trump. But do they come to a realization that in the general, Trump is unelectable because of what went on at the end of his presidency? I believe he is unelectable because of what went on at the end of his presidency. So I do, even if he wins the primary I do, and, and gets the nomination, I do not think he will win the general. He will lose. I firmly believe that. I don't know if the Republican Party and the diehards believe that, but I firmly believe that. I do not think he can win. Uh, Ricky, thoughts on Mattingly becoming the Yankee manager? I don't think it will happen. First of all, I don't think Boone's going anywhere this year. Secondly, if the Yankees change managers, the manager will be a much more modern play, you know, much more modern candidate tied more to modern baseball theory and also tied more to the age of the players. I do not think he will be Donnie. Uh, I have great respect for Mattingly, but I don't think he'll be the Yankee manager. I'd be very surprised. Connor, uh, what do you think about the current situation in college athletics, specifically basketball and football, with the transfer portal and the NIL deals? Uh, Patino has been able to almost immediately return St. John's to prominence. First of all, the first thing that will return St. John's to prominence is having Patino as the coach because whether you like Patino or don't like Patino, like his background, don't like his background, Patino is one of the greatest college basketball coaches of all time. That's all there is to it. That's not even a debatable argument. He is that good. Number two, the, you, you are either going to, and let's stick to basketball right now since we're dealing with St. John's, you are either going to compete with the NILs or you are going to find it very hard to play on the highest level of college basketball because the schools will compete. And that means that you have to go out and spend millions of dollars in the NIL. If you don't have somebody that can do that, either have a... Uh, way to raise money inside your entire athletic department with, with boosters, uh, give you a basketball program that will do that. Villanova will do that. They will do that with their rank and file. They will, it will not need one person to fund it. St. John's right now needs one person to fund it. That person is Rapoli. He is gonna, he's going to fund the NILs for the most part. Um, they don't have enough deep pocket alums to do that. They don't have that kind of support that some other schools might have. Now, a Providence might find it very hard, and I think they will, to compete in that level, and they might wind up dropping down. Somebody else might wind up coming up. So don't be surprised to see a Davidson move into the uh, Big East, as an example. Um, You're either going to, or you're not. But let me say this. The transfer portal and the NIL are on their way to ruining, as we know, college football and basketball. They are about ready to completely destroy it. And there will be a very, very big movement in college football to where a league like the SEC will just be off on its own and playing on a level that no one else can compete on, and that includes the Big Ten. Victor, you were the first to recognize that Sandusky case should be on the front page instead of the back story if it started out. Uh, Hey, that was only because, well, number one, I realized it was going to be a massive story. But number two, we had someone who could get to the inside of the story, and that was Kim Jones, because she went there. She knew the Patino family well uh she did a great job reporting and as a matter of fact her reporting on that story on my show should have gained her a lot more attention than it did because she did an incredible job and she was objective even though she had a great relationship with the paternal family she she maintained her objectivity during the whole thing which she deserved credit for but it was a lot of kim's reporting that really made that such a big story on my show uh because i didn't have her to do that i couldn't have done it from you know from the fan studio So she did that, and it was very impressive stuff. Um, Where do you see the Northwestern case going? Uh, I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of denial in the Northwestern case. So I think it will be open, okay, where in Penn State you were dealing with an iconic coach, who had a wall built up that allowed them a level of deniability for a long time that turned out to be extremely destructive to them. And did I do let me just go from this standpoint. When the coach, and I'm not there on any of these cases, so either are you, either am I, but let me say this. I've been around college athletics since the eighties. And I spent many years on the road in my, early in my career doing this stuff and being in college cities every weekend. And I can tell you, the football coach always bragged that no, they all did. Nothing went on in their town. Forget in their university or in their football program, nothing went on in their city that they didn't get the first call that they didn't know about. So when you hear these coaches say, I didn't know what was happening, it is almost 99.9 a lie. These coaches know what is happening in their programs. To say that you don't is a very weak defense, and nobody believes it. So when I hear Fitzgerald say, I didn't know about it. He is saying that because his lawyers are telling him to say that because he's trying to protect the $40 million that they owe him and they don't want to pay him. See, the first thing Northwestern did was jump up after they changed their first, first first week suspension, then realized there was more to the story. They jumped up and fired him for cause for cause, which means you're not getting paid and that jumped the lawyers. Now you're going to have a lawsuit because, Fitzgerald now is having his name sullied. He'll have a hard time coaching again. And they're looking to take $40 million out of his pocket that he has on his contract. That is going to lead to a what case. But any of us who have been around college athletics do not believe that he didn't know. We never believed that. I never believed that. I didn't believe it in the Paterno case. I still to this day don't understand the Paterno-Sandusky dynamic in that I know they didn't like each other. I always knew that. They were very different people. But he tolerated Sandusky because he was a very good coach, and he was. He was a very talented defensive coordinator, even though he was a goofball. No one realized he was a, you know, a serial pedophile. Now, if Joe knew, and he definitely knew, the first time it happened, he was called. Now, we're supposed to believe that Joe is so much apple pie and white socks and 50s mentality that he didn't comprehend what was being told to him. The man is a brilliant man. Paterno was well read. He was, well, he was a very smart man. He knew what it meant. He might not have thought that in his comprehension that somebody could do that, living as little, you know, you know he had had one girlfriend in his life. He married a woman. He lived on campus. He was a king in his domain. We all know that. But He understood what was being said. Now, I've had, you know, his son say to me, we let our kids swim for the Eskies pool. You think we would have done that if we knew it? Hey, I'm telling you, in 98, when the report came out, Joe knew. He He got told in that report. Everyone in the world knew that. Now you're telling me he didn't comprehend it? I don't know. I can't then justify his actions from there. They make no sense. He never made an appearance for the second mile. Joe ever, which tells you he didn't want anything to do with Sandusky, but he didn't banish him, which makes no sense. I still to this day don't know how to rectify that in my mind. It doesn't. Now, the only thing I can think of is he and the president of school felt we are not going to let this weirdo take us down. They're not going to destroy everything we built and they destroyed everything they built. That's exactly what he did. Now, in this case, you're not talking about a monument to a way of life like Paterno was. The Paterno way was actually a thing. Paterno thumbed his nose at guys who cheated or guys who didn't make his students go to class Well, at the same time, those guys would say now, hey, yeah, all you did was house a pedophile, which is so much worse. How the heck do you, what do you think now? And I'm like, I I can't defend it. There's no way to defend it. Now, Pat gets up and says, I didn't know this was going on. You got whistleblowers saying he not only knew what was going on, he basically told the players to do it. I think Pat Is no, Is it terrible judgment? It's insanely bad judgment. You wonder what these coaches are thinking. In this day and age, what are they thinking? You don't haze players. You don't sexually degrade players. Yeah, I, I, I don't understand it. You don't understand how they can be. They, this guy's at Northwestern. How can he be so patently stupid? But you live and learn with these cases that human behavior is very hard to comprehend sometimes. So do I think this is that kind of scandal? No, because I think the, the school is already backing the whistleblower. They are not putting up a wall. They are basically saying we understand we did all this and we have already fired our coach. And we are basically saying we will do whatever we have to do to cleanse the program. So I don't think, first of all, Northwestern is not Penn state. So it will not have the same impact. Fitzgerald is not paternal. It will not have the same impact, but I don't think they're trying to build a wall to protect their image and protect their legacy I think they have thrown the windows open. Now it's a question of, do you believe the whistleblowers? Are you going to believe some players who are going to come out and support Fitzgerald who already have and say this is overdone? Hey, my theory is you didn't get a guy one night. Now, we all know the guy who blew the whistle hated Fitzgerald. Hated him, said he wanted to bring him down. But he didn't sit in a room and make up this thing. He didn't say, I'll tell you how I'm going to make this elaborate thing up about what happened. And so there's truth to what he said because no one makes up this kind of thing. And I think Fitzgerald's going to take a beating here. Now, whether or not he gets his money or not remains to it's up to a jury and how it's presented. That really doesn't matter to most people. What matters is where they go from here and where they go from here is they're admitting that they messed up. So I do not think it will be anything like Penn State, but the biggest reason why is it's not Paterno. It's not Penn State. Penn State was a kingdom. It was a football kingdom. There was only one Penn State. And the way you looked at it was that Paterno did it the right way, the old-school way. And then you have this at the underbelly, and you know, without any question, infecting the program, and you're like, "stunned!" There's no other word for it. It's one of the most stunning things I ever remember happening in my whole life in sports was what went on at Penn State. I still, to this day, don't understand how it was allowed to go on. Uh, Bradley. Did you ever know or ever get to meet Howard Cosell? Yes. What was your opinion of him as an announcer, entertainer, sports personality? I think he... I didn't... I'm not going to tell you I knew Howard so well because I didn't. Did I know him to say hello to? Yes. He... Did not like my early presentation. He went after me a couple times where he thought that I had too strong of opinions. And it's funny because he made his whole life on opinions. But he, didn't, like my, and I was just getting started, but he came after me a couple times. And, and that was fine. I mean, you know, you were getting recognized by Howard Cosell. It didn't matter if it was good or bad. Um, but he actually came after me a couple of times uh, about opinions I had. And I think he was a consummate entertainer. But remember, in his role, here's what Cosell learned. When Cosell decided, I'm going to have an entertainment show, nobody watched. It bombed. Nobody wanted Cosell in that role. They wanted Cosell in his Monday night football role. What Cosell thought was that he was bigger than life. Instead, and he was a big personality. No one's saying he's not. But it worked for him inside the role where sports was the vehicle. The vehicle wasn't Howard. The vehicle was Howard as a sports commentator. That worked. Howard as the entertainer, Howard as the personality, it didn't work. Not to the nation, they couldn't stand him. And And his TV show bombed. He had an entertainment show that was so bad it was painful. But you have him reading highlights on Monday night, that was classic. But where he was really, where I loved Cosell was... When Dan Ingram on ABC, and I would turn on the radio just to hear it in the morning and in the afternoon, now we broached the coach and Gosell would give you unscripted 60 seconds of the most dramatic sports commentary, and it would have a setup. It would have a beginning. It would have a middle, and it would have an end, and it would be perfectly crafted inside, and he'd go back in 30 seconds. And it was so good. So good. As good as anything I've ever heard. That was Howard Cosell. Enjoy your day. Thanks for listening to the Mike Francesa podcast on the Bet Rivers Network.